Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, a little over a year ago, we were joined by Hugh Selby-Smith of Talaria Capital, who shared a number of eye-opening statistics and what they were really telling us about the state of markets and the global economy. The Talaria team have recut the numbers and have put together a similar list, frankly, of quite extraordinary numbers this year. You think that it can't get more interesting, but it does. And uh, it does demonstrate, in fact, that we live in very interesting times. Hugh's been kind enough to join us again, talk about what we might make of it all. Hugh, thanks so much for joining me. Gentlemen, great to be here. Thanks for having us back. So you and your guys have collated this set of rather extraordinary data points. Which of the 10, so it's 10, I'm sure there's no specific reason why that number, but which of the 10 was most interesting or most shocking to you? Uh, I think there's probably two that we've sort of knocked around on the desk that were pretty remarkable. The first is that, you know, as of November the last year, um, you know, where markets were clearly at the low, the S&P had lost around about $11 trillion in market capitalization up to that point. Now, what's incredible to us is that that is the equivalent to the entire market capitalization of the S&P 500 in 2011. So what was shocking about it? Firstly, actually, it shows the scale of, you know, wealth destruction. So obviously, it's actually, you know, the Buffett lose less when the market goes down. Rule number two, lose less when the market goes down is just so apt. But it probably also starkly illustrates just what an incredible run that investors have had in global equity markets that, you know, your entire drawdown last year was equivalent to um, to the entire market capitalization a little over 10 years before. So that's probably the first one. I think the other one that several of my colleagues in the team kind of found pretty shocking um, is around Meta, you know, a fantastic growth story. If you think when it listed in 2012, this was a company that had revenues of about $5 billion. Um, I think to the end of last year, revenues were oh, just shy of $120 billion. So no one can argue that this hasn't been a fantastic growth story. But actually, to the end of uh, last year, Meta had actually underperformed the S&P 500 by 45% which is pretty incredible and, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to reinforce within the group um, just the central importance of valuation. So it really says the price you pay is so much more important than the narrative or the delivery of um, growth or otherwise. So they're probably the two that I'd highlight. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, I remember when I first started I guess learning about markets, but actually being in markets and Vanguard does their chart showing the long-term performance is just lines on a slide. Uh, long-term performance of different asset classes. And I started investing in or started working in investing about 2000, 2001. And it just showed how much dramatically better international markets had been than the ASX and various other markets. And your point about the S&P 500 is so accurate as well. Like if you look at it again now, it's very similar, right? 
It is. And, you know, if you go back to the early 70s or go back no further than the early 70s, um, you see these fairly extended periods where the US market leads other international share markets for, you know, quite often between seven and nine years, and then that reverts. And I think that is really just a function of um, the second point, right, is that certain markets in the world are materially cheaper, and that is still the investor's best friend over the long term. Um, and things get overbought clearly late late in that run, right? Because um, we all have a human bias to extrapolate, um, you know, fantastic things in the recent past as if they're going to continue forever. And of course, we all know intuitively that that's not true. It's a uh, it's a wonderful lead in. You made the point about narratives as well. One of your notes is about Tesla, and that is far and away the most popular international stock on NABTrade. I think it's actually the most popular stock of all stocks, including the ASX, which is still sort of 80% of our numbers on the app. So if, if people are trading on the app, Tesla's number one. Can you tell us a bit about that? I found those numbers amazing. Well, firstly, can I just say that it's pretty amazing to me that the single most traded stock uh, across your um, client base is, is Tesla. You know, I find that fairly startling, um, particularly given the size of the pension market in Australia and so on. Um, the stat I think that we sent through to you, Gemma, was just highlighting that over the course of 2022, and bear in mind Tesla remains the fifth largest stock in the S&P index, um, it actually lost $700 billion of market capitalization uh, over the course of last year. Now, with 700 billion, you can buy the bottom 71 companies in the S&P 500. Um, now, they jointly generated about 640 billion of, of annual revenues. And the point here is that um, there is an opportunity of uh, diversification right? Like clearly we've seen over the last several years and a lot of people obviously suffered in 2022 because of this overexposure to a very narrow cohort of companies. And we've been making the point for some time is that there is opportunities to diversify, better be that, you know, region, style, return type and so on. And I think the Tesla example in terms of what you could buy with the equivalent loss of market capitalization makes that fairly succinctly. Yeah, it's quite... It's quite a powerful story. I should clarify, by the way, when I say most popular, I mean by number of trades, not by value. And there's a fairly, there's a fairly dramatic difference, if I'm honest with you. Tesla tends to be a lot of small trades, not necessarily the largest. Uh, by value, not even close, in fact. And you'll see heaps more stocks on the ASX that get traded in much larger values. Uh, so your point, particularly about pensioners and, and people in retirement phase and self-managed super funds and so on, they're not buying Tesla. They might have a little bit, not a lot. <laughs> a confession at this point, Gemma. I'm I'm slightly relieved. You know, the idea that I'm <laughs> at home on the on the NAB app, day trading Tesla. You know, when we talk about her, the state of her financial well being, would would make me somewhat nervous. Yeah, I, uh, and again, we should also clarify the demographics who use the app versus the demographics who use <laughs> the desktop site are quite different. <laughs> um, they're, they're really different groups of people. But even so, if you do go into international, it is Tesla, Daylight, and then everything else. Like it's quite amazing how much that company and perhaps the CEO of that company have attracted the public attention. I find it amazing. So one comment you've made that I find fascinating and it flows very nicely from the conversation about Tesla is that there's a fairly sizable disconnect between markets and earnings. How are you seeing that play out at the moment? 
Right, yeah. So um, if we go back to last year, and I'm talking specifically about the S&P 500 really as a proxy, um, I think earnings estimates for 2023, so the current year now, were about 254. That was the peak that was reached right at the end of May of last year. And as we saw um, forward indicators uh, in terms of growth, particularly things like the Institute of Supply Chain Management or the Purchasing Managers Index start to move into contractionary territory, lo and behold, you know, we've started to see estimate cuts. So over the course of from the end of May last year to today, we've gone 254 to about 222 of earnings on the S&P. Now, over the same period of time, the mark, so about a 10, about 12% earnings downgrade. Over the same period, the S&P 500 is up about 11%. So um, that's the backdrop I, I think that, that you're referring to. You know, what's a plausible answer for that? So rather than saying whether we agree or disagree, I think the market narrative around justifying that is really um, rooted in the change of the outlook for inflation. Clearly, we've seen a we've passed the peak in terms of headline inflation, just the rate is coming down, particularly in the US. And that has changed the market's expectations for the outlook for inflation. Uh, and that they're saying, well, there's going to be a, a, a mild earnings recession potentially, you know, because I think S&P earnings over the next 12 months now are around about zero. So that might be a little bit worse. Um, so you have one or two quarters of weak earnings, but given that we've passed the peak in terms of inflation and the outlook for peak interest rates, we can really look forward to that uh, a better outturn for corporate profitability in 2024 and ahead. And I think that that's the narrative that one would have to subscribe to to justify or contextualize the recent move that we've seen in the first you know six weeks of the year in equity markets. So million dollar question then. Are you comfortable with that consensus? Do you think that that shift in outlook is likely or reasonable? No, from our, and I say we don't subscribe to that view, and that really comes from two things. Firstly, you know, we're bottom-up individual stock investors, so um, we get very good data from the things that we analyse as a potential investment on behalf of our clients, okay? And the majority of the ideas that are coming through are still exhibiting to our eye of a kind of long-term expectation of the cash flows that these companies can generate. They're significantly over-earning, Gemma. Okay, so we're not getting a corroboration of that in terms of the bottom-up work we do. And the second key thing I'd say from the bottom-up perspective is when we're typically at, at turning points, um, and bear in mind this is the 18th year we've been running the strategy, you see the pace of new idea generation, you know, from myself and my colleagues accelerate. And there's not a plethora of ideas. We're not seeing that acceleration. So from a bottom-up perspective, certainly not. From a top-down perspective, really, we've never seen markets uh, bottom without a sustainable trough in those lead indicators of economic growth. And the reason that that is typically coincident with the trough is because that gives you a read to the outlook for corporate profitability. Now, given the rises in particularly interest rates, so kind of the monetary policy lag, that, that takes about typically 18 to 24 months to feed through. And so we would expect to continue to see a series of earnings downgrades driven by um, margins over the course of this year. And I think that ultimately that will see markets continue to struggle in terms of uh, in terms of the outlook for this year. 
Yeah, I don't think you're alone, although the market is sending some strong signals that they're reasonably happy at the moment. I think my favorite stat in the entire piece at a company level is Amazon's share of the advertising market. People don't necessarily think of Amazon as an advertising company. Can you tell us a bit about that, where they've come to and how they got there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously we think about, you know, I've, I've talked about Meta and sort of Alphabet, of course, with with uh, Google and, and with YouTube. Um, they're two companies that have come through our screen and they're companies that have had a tremendous kind of growth as we, as I sort of highlighted in terms of the revenue growth at Meta, um, to the point now that they're, you know, nearly 50% of global advertising revenue, okay? And advertising revenue is really just a GDP-linked business, um, you know, it goes up and down with, with GDP. So it doesn't, it's not a multiplier on GDP. So you think back from 10 years ago and you had um, Alphabet and Meta and they were able to go from, you know, basically 1% market share and drive the capture of new ways of disseminating the advertising, you know? And so now they're at a point where the pace of being able to do that will slow dramatically just because they are actually the largest um, advertising companies in the world. So that's the first thing, and they become cyclical companies, and ultimately then, you know, people won't pay for growth. They'll look at the cyclicality. But the second dynamic is behind them, you know, these huge opportunities, as we've seen in profit terms, a number of the competitors um, are coming behind them. So in effect, Alphabet and Meta has gone from the hunter, you know, the hunting to the hunted. And Amazon represents that fantastically where now they have they are about 5% of global advertising share. They're the third largest company in the world by advertising revenue. And to be able to grow significantly, it's not because the market growth for digital advertising is growing. It's that they're going to have to be able to take share off the current incumbents in digital advertising, and that is Meta and Alphabet. And bear in mind, it's not just Amazon, right? I mean, Apple has a significant advertising business and, and all the other people that we kind of know um, that are trying to monetize the, the clicks um, by selling advertising space. So I think that's a really big uh, change in the dynamic and the fact that you know, your single biggest competitor now is Alphabet and Meta is Amazon. Well, you know, how do you square that where before it was winner takes all? Well, these companies are perceived five years ago as winner takes all, and yet they're actually competing directly head on with each other now. Yeah, they're not the oligopolies we were thinking of back in the days of oil and <laughs> the stuff you learned about a university. Here are your oligopolies. No, we're talking about tech companies now and social media owning advertising. You've made a couple of comparisons to the World War II era, which I find fascinating. You kind of, it's such an enormous slice of history that US earnings are now higher than at any time since that point. But also the world GDP, sorry, world debt to GDP levels have increased dramatically over that period, perhaps more recently. Uh, what do you make of those figures? Yeah, the point really when I sent those through to you, Gemma, was to sort of highlight that we had two very different dynamics now from going forward compared to the last, uh, say, 40 years or coming out of the Second World War. So the reason we used the Second World War is, as you said, the level of kind of profitability was extremely high as a percentage of the overall GDP, so corporate profits. They're very high today. But you have this um, situation where that was a function of the labour share of uh, returns 
um, was relatively low, right? Because that's one of the biggest inputs to, to all companies is the cost of labour. But you had this fantastic runway of uh, more and more and ever cheaper and cheaper labour. So clearly you had return service people, you had a change to the um, gender mix in terms of the labour force that came through post-Second World War, and then you moved through into a period of globalisation where, you know, effectively you had 700 million new uh, participants in the labour market as we moved into globalisation, you know, two to 300 million from Eastern Europe and about half a billion from China specifically. Okay, so you're in that situation then. So you have this huge demographic and social re-engineering of the labour force that was a tailwind that allowed capital to be able to take a greater share relative to labour of the profit pool. At the same time, as that labour pool potentially struggled, you know, debt to GDP was about 145% after World War II. There was also a building out of the social safety net, okay, if you think about access to education, health, uh, childcare, and, and so forth. Play forward to today, those 700 million in terms of the uh, that globalisation is in reverse, you know, okay? We're sort of seeing deglobalization and a re-engineering of supply chains. So, you know, that's a headwind where for a long period or pretty much every investor's life who'd be listening to this, it's been a tailwind. I think the second key thing is then you say, well, actually, there's also just this huge demographic issue that we all hear about, we all know it's just a mathematical truism, but that will be persistent. It will be a persistent headwind to labour participation rates now and for the rest of our lifetime. Like that's just baked in the cake. I mean, it is shocking given how young I am, you know, the global dependency ratio is going to increase over the next 30 years. So there'll only be four working age people for every single retiree over 65. Now, that compares to nearly double the working age people at the end of, of, of 2021. You had seven working age people to support a retiree over 65. I mean, it's going to halve. And then the third key thing I just wanted to say is that debt to GDP is now, it's not quite double, it's about 256% world debt to GDP. Okay, and that doesn't include the off-balance sheet liabilities where people have written in like Australia or many developed markets, you know, um, post-retirement benefits, particularly around healthcare and, and social services, okay? So you have this now persistence where labour shortages are only going to get more and more and more acute as we go forward, and that is just structural. And yet on the other hand, um, you're in a situation where the government is not going to be able to support the general population to the same degree by, you know, giving them a whole range of goods and services to supplement their income. So the bottom line here is over the last 40 years, we've been in this disinflationary environment largely as uh, on the on the labour side and going forward, we're going to be one of the most critical shortages in the world is going to be labour. And I'm sure you've had conversations and your listeners have, you know, it's pretty much the conversation du jour over the last year with every business owner, be that going down to the market to buy your fruit or having your morning coffee, you know, people accessing labour is something that is an everyday conversation now in a way that is completely different to my lifetime. Yeah, it's been extraordinary, the shift overall. I believe that the extraction of workers from the workforce, trying to think of a better term than that in the US as a result of COVID due to mm. 
deaths, which is horrendous, but also people with long COVID or people unable to go back to work or people becoming carers and so on was about a million people, which should take them out of the workforce is just an astonishing number. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think, you know, the Laker statistics, you know, clearly the unemployment rate is very low. We have the non-farm payrolls, um, you know, the last non-farm payrolls showed an increase in employment of about 500,000. Um, and yet, if you look at the total level of people employed in the US economy, even though the um, unemployment rate is pretty much an all-time low now, certainly over everybody that would be listening's lifetime, um, the total number of jobs is about 5 million less than pre-COVID. So you've had far less jobs, and yet the unemployment rate is far, far lower, which is fairly incredible. So, you know, this, remember when you think about, you know, the outlook for, you know, Federal Reserve policy, and I'm not talking this year, I'm talking medium term, is um, about 70% of the, of course, CPI is really made up of services. You know, that's around rents, but it's also really around the cost of labour, because that's what drives service inflation. So, thinking that we're going to go back to a benign as it was inflation environment, I think is having to uh, overcome that part of the the discussion that labour is not going to be a source of inflation going forward. And yet it's clear that we're going to have a persistent shortage of labour globally now um, for the foreseeable future of every investor's horizon. A little bit scary to think about. I used to be quite hostile to the idea that uh, there were going to be so many retired people and then I looked at the numbers and realized, I, realized I'd be one of them, which <laughs> very quickly made me less hostile to the whole idea. It's very upsetting to realize that at some point you're in that cohort. Yeah, when uh, did I get old all of a sudden? Exactly. I'm so young. Surely that shouldn't happen to me. Uh We've talked a lot about the US and it does tend to be where we focus when we look at international markets. And the names that we've talked about are all companies that our investors are very, very familiar with when we look at where they trade internationally, even if it is clearly a Chinese tech company or a Chinese conglomerate, uh, they'll buy the US listed alternative. And yet you've made a couple of notes when you're suggesting some potential implications from these incredible data points that point outside the US. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think the US market has come to dominate global indices. Um, it's about 70% of you know the, the MSCI world indice is sort of the US. Um, clearly, a lot of the banner companies that have driven the returns to be so good in equity markets over the last, you know, post-GFC, um, have been a narrow cohort of, of US technology companies in particular. And that's really sucked in a lot of money that has left a whole range of um, other international markets, and I've referred to the benefits of diversification, that look materially cheaper to us. And certainly, um, we continue to source many more ideas out of the US than we do within the US equity market. I think I sent through to you just um, to discuss, you know, one, for example, you know, Microsoft, we haven't owned Microsoft. Um, we have owned uh, NTT, which is the Nippon Telegraph, uh, Telephone and Telegraph, which is the largest telecoms company in Japan. If you look over the last 10 years to sort of the end of 2022, that um, NTT has been actually a better share than Microsoft. So, you know, it's had about 5% underperformance Microsoft versus NTT um, over the last two years to the end of 2022. So I guess the key point here is that there's good opportunities to be able to diversify 
in companies that are materially more reasonably priced, but also you don't have to give up performance by doing that. You just have to be able to look at the opportunity by region, really by sector. And, you know, you've referred to the volume of trades that are done in particular names and, and by implication sectors where you started talking about Chinese tech stocks as well, but also by return type in terms of, you know, income as a component of return long-term is, you know, at least half of the long-term equity market return comes from income, whether you take that or not. And I think given the um, fantastic returns, you know, particularly up to the end of sort of 2021 in US equity markets and driven by tech, people had forgotten that one of the only free lunches in investing is is um, is diversification. Well, it's amazing how we all forget about diversification when the thing we like is doing well. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it is pretty incredible if, you know, there's there's no shortage of global equity managers of which we're one of, you know, the we're the smartest of the 24,000 in the room, as I like to say. But, you know, you go through and how many of them own Microsoft? Well, you know, uh, an awful lot. How many of those own NTT? Very, very few. And yet here we are saying that NTT has generated you a 5% better return to the end of last year over the last two years. You know, that's the lack of people taking advantage of opportunities to diversify into more reasonably priced shares and regions. You do wonder to what extent the Microsoft is the uh, the GE of uh, of 20, probably 30 years ago, right? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't like to say, Gemma. <laughs> also, that didn't end so well, so maybe not a great example, but that idea that everyone has to own it perhaps is what I'm alluding to. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I actually knew Jack Welsh in the late 90s, you know, when I was sort of overseas investing and, um, you know, clearly there had been a whole range of strategic decisions made at the company level to sort of drive a continued outperformance that weren't sensible in terms of allocating the capital. And, you know, when Jeff Immolt took over, he was left with a, you know, pretty difficult task that ultimately came came a cropper, right, after the GFC and, and GE Capital. Um, I'm not suggesting that's the case with Microsoft, but certainly once you get into a situation where, uh, you feel that you need to deliver because of what you represent in the market as opposed to deliver the for the well-being of the longevity of the company and the cash flows, then you know that can leave investors clearly at risk of losing significant amounts of their money. Oh, we definitely won't draw a conclusion to, to Microsoft. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, you know, for all intensive purposes, Microsoft's a fantastic company. Now, that's a very different statement to is it a fantastic investment at this price? Yeah, that's a great way to summarize it. Hugh, you and your team publish ideas and insights for investors. You manage money on behalf of investors. Where should people go to find out more about you and what you're working on? Um, well, I think the best place is to go to the Talaria Capital website, so talariacapital.com.au. And within that, there's a tab at the top that's called the Media Hub on our website. And that really um, is always up to date with anything that we've published um, more broadly or insight pieces. And I think that that's where uh, there's some videos as well. So I think that's where I would direct anybody who's interested in hearing more about, you know, what, what we as a firm have to say. I think you've done a wonderful job and you've done a superb job in terms of bringing some of the more interesting elements of what's going on in the world uh, to people's attention in a nice catchy kind of way. Hugh Selby-Smith from Talaria Capital, thank you so much for joining us today. Gemma, thanks very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. 
Thank you so much for joining us also. As always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback. We love getting your questions. We love knowing what you want to hear more about. So please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.